The events on the evening of October 26th, and then on October 27th, 1881, laid a lot of groundwork for what was about to happen. On the evening of the now infamous gunfight at the OK Corral, a recovering Morgan and Virgil Earp received a visit at their home from none other than Johnny Bean. Despite the fact that Johnny had literally tried to arrest Wyatt in the moments after the shooting, and they had all heard him say he had disarmed the Cowboys moments before the confrontation, he had actually come in peace. Virgil and Johnny were both duly sworn lawmen, after all, and following a brief conversation, they agreed that they were more or less friends. But this agreement would prove to be nothing more than a social nicety, as Johnny would soon prove himself to be anything but a friend to the Earps in the coming days, weeks, and months. Meanwhile, the bodies of Frank and Tom McLowry, along with Billy Clanton, were prominently displayed in Tombstone's funeral parlor window, which proclaimed that they had been murdered. Then, on the 27th, the day after the shooting, the finely made caskets were borne away to the now equally infamous Boot Hill Graveyard. The funeral procession included Billy's brothers, Ike and Finn, two hearses, 300 mourners, 22 carriages, one stagecoach, innumerable riders on horseback, and some 2,000 onlookers. Many of those same onlookers also knew that the gunfight of the previous day was just the rock that hit the hornet's nest. And soon the hornets, or in this case the cowboys, would swarm. And that meant that public opinion was turning sharply against those who had thrown the rock in the first place. Wyatt Earp, his brothers, and his best buddy Doc Holliday. Because it turns out that the gunfight solved nothing and really accomplished nothing. And the feud between the Earps and the Cowboys was about to get worse. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 89, The OK Corral, Part 7, Blood Will Surely Come. Welcome back, everyone. First off, let me apologize for the technical issues we had with the last episode. As a good friend pointed out, it was a terrible place for an episode to suddenly stop midway through, and I hope you are all able to listen to the rebroadcast that I sent out a few days later. After looking into it, I determined that it was some sort of software glitch with the RSS feed that, knock on wood, shouldn't happen again. Just please don't ask me for any more specifics because, well, that's about as far as my computer knowledge really goes. Darn it, Jim, I'm a history podcaster, not a software engineer. But seeing as the full episode eventually did go out, we can keep on moving forward without having to backtrack. So... When last we left off, the Herbs and Doc Holliday had confronted Billy and Ike Clanton along with Frank and Tom McLowry in that empty lot across from the dress shop on October 26, 1881. 30 seconds and 30 bullets later, Billy, Frank, and Tom would be pushing daisies while Ike was cowering in an office somewhere. In the coming days, there would be a growing disagreement among Tombstone's population about the causes of the shootout and whether it had been justified or not. The shooting became just another round in the giant tug-of-war between Tombstone's elite and the Cowboys, 
which also lined up neatly with the divide between Republicans and Democrats. The Gulf was helped along when the county coroner convened a jury for a formal inquest into the deaths of the three men on October 28th, so just two days after the shooting. Now, this is getting into some deep legal weeds, but during a coroner's inquest, there was no judge, no lawyers, no chance at cross-examination. The coroner could call as many witnesses as he liked, and an assembled jury could ask questions, but it's not really like a trial. And in this case, all the witnesses were ready and willing to throw the herbs under the bus. First up was Johnny Bean who had more than enough reasons to make sure that the herbs were made responsible for the deaths. Then Clanton slash McLowry friend Billy Claiborne, who had been on the scene in the moments before the shootout testified. And then Ike Clanton himself. Gee, I wonder which way they were leaning on the whole thing. But critically, none of the herbs were called to testify. Long story short, the coroner declared in an ambiguous ruling that really didn't settle anything that Billy Frank and Tom had met their end due to gunshots inflicted on them by Virgil, Morgan, Wyatt, and Doc. Nothing more, but nothing less. But what it was enough for was for Ike Clanton to walk into the office of Tombstone's Justice of the Peace and file first-degree murder charges. Okay, so this is more legal morass, but under territorial law at the time, the defendants would have a hearing first, where the justice of the peace would determine if there was enough evidence of criminal intent to refer the matter to an actual grand jury, to have charges leveled, and to go to, you know, a real trial. So the courtroom drama around the gunfight didn't play out in a full-blown trial like you would see on Law & Order, but it did have its fair share of some dramatic moments. Both Doc Holliday and Wyatt were arrested, and then eventually released on bail, while Morgan and Virgil were still recovering from their wounds, so they were not required to go to jail or even appear at most of the hearing. I will note, however, that literally adding insult to injury, Virgil was suspended from his position as Tombstone's chief of police by a skittish town council who were quickly realizing that the eyes of the nation were uncomfortably training on Tombstone at the moment. And I don't mean that figuratively. The gunfight was quickly becoming big news in papers around the country, which is not generally the kind of publicity that most towns on the rise really want. The hearing kicked off on Monday, October 31st, so a mere five days after the actual gunfight. The prosecution went hard after the Earps, and especially Holiday, who, to be fair, was a pretty easy target. They argued that the first shot had come from a nickel-plated pistol, a detail happily supplied by Johnny Bean, which was a strong insinuation that it was Holiday that had recklessly opened fire, seeing as he was well known to carry a nickel-plated pistol. Though the defense managed to point out that the prosecution also blamed Doc for blasting away Tom with the shotgun, and how exactly did he manage to fire both his signature pistol and the shotgun, which requires two hands? Out of this, we also get the reoccurring, but not proven testimony, that Tom McLowry wasn't even armed and was in the process of showing that he had no weapons on him when the shooting started. And this will be a sticking point with the anti-ERP faction for years. 
remembered that the coroner had not found a weapon on him, which led to the inevitable conclusion by the cowboys that he had been straight up murdered. However, the testimony around this point is kind of inconclusive, as there were reasons to suspect that he both did and did not have a pistol on him. Several cowboy sympathizers also testified that Virgil had ordered the McLowrys and Clantons to turn in their weapons, but his posse had actually opened fire before waiting for any kind of response. Even more damning, though, were the townspeople who were called to testify. For example, one woman claimed that as Virgil and his group moved past her down Fremont Street, one of the Earps had said, let him have it, to which Holiday had enthusiastically agreed. Which, again, to be fair, sounds like the kind of thing he would do. Things were actually going pretty well for the prosecution until it made one fatal misstep. You see, Will McLowry, brother of the deceased Frank and Tom, was actually a practicing lawyer in Texas. He came to Tombstone to see his brother's bodies, but decided to join the prosecution in order to get some sweet vengeance for his family. And in his fervor to get that vengeance, he decided to put Ike Clanton on the stand. This was a big mistake. Now, I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Ike Clanton is not a smart guy. And when he got to the stand, he just started rambling. And rambling. And rambling. At first, it was the same testimony that everyone else had given. His group was about to leave town of their own accord. Johnny Bean had politely asked to disarm them. Then Virgil's gang stomped onto the scene, and not caring that neither he or Tom were armed, Doc Holliday and Morgan started blasting away. Okay, so far, so good. Then he started into how he had been bullied by Morgan and Holiday the night before the shooting, and then by Virgil, Morgan, and Wyatt the day of, without the least bit of provocation because, of course, you know, he was a peace-loving man who had never hurt a fly and had no cause to quarrel with the Earps, etc., etc., etc. Okay, well, that might be a little untrue, but still, gold for the prosecution. But then it was the time for the defense to cross-examine, and you can bet that they made the most out of it. First and foremost, they had Ike admit that, yes, he had been drunkenly walking around Tombstone illegally armed the morning of the shooting and making threats against the Earps. Then they pulled out the trump card, a telegraph from Wells Fargo where Ike had inquired about the bounty on the robbers of the Benson stagecoach. In short... Ike's deal with Wyatt to rat out and lure in his cowboy brethren was now out in the open. To cover for this, Ike started spitting a very fascinating version of history, wherein Wyatt had approached him about the deal, which, of course, Ike as an honorable man wanted nothing to do with. And this is where the alternative history really kicks in. Because, according to Ike, Wyatt and Morgan were secretly behind the robbery, having taken the money out of the coach's lockbox before it even left Tombstone. Then he had split the money with Holiday and Billy Leonard, who was one of the actual robbers. Now, Ike testified, Wyatt was afraid that Leonard would squeal on him, his brother and his best buddy, so he needed to be taken out. To which Ike claimed that he instantly said that he wanted no part of this dastardly scheme. 
like I said a couple episodes back, this was a tale of the tallest order, and it was easily debunked. But Ike wasn't done there. Under further questioning, Ike said that Doc Holliday had confessed to him that he had killed Bud Philpot, the coach's driver. Then he turned the finger over to Morgan, saying that he had confessed to Ike his role in the affair and asked for his help. Even Virgil didn't escape the blame, with Ike accusing him of confessing that not only was he a part of the robbery, but he had done his best to mislead the pursuing posse in the days that followed. When questioned about why he had not come forward with this information in the days following the robbery to the authorities, Ike could only reply that he had made a gentleman's agreement upon his honor not to say anything, and only the unbreakable oath of the courtroom induced him to do it now. He also said that he feared for his life, knowing that there was a price on the head of the robbers and that Wyatt and his little gang would do anything to cover up their malfeasance. So, in this telling, the shootout was a premeditated way to shut him up permanently, and the Earps and Holiday didn't care one bit that three innocent men were caught in the literal crossfire. To be blunt, Ike's story was absurd and the entire court knew it. His testimony did the single most damage to the prosecution's case. But allow me a little digression right now. Because while Ike's testimony is easily disproven today, his version of events did linger for a very long time. I mentioned this a couple episodes back, but we actually find Ike's version written down by early state historian James H. McClintock, recording it roughly 30 years after the fact. For example, he says that the Herbs were all gamblers and, quote, they were charged, first and last, with about half of the robberies that were of such frequent occurrence on the roads leading out of the camp, end quote. Note, not true. And while McClintock says that they were not active participants in the Benson Stagecoach robberies, they were parties to it. Second note, not true. In McClintock's version, this was the real reason behind the animosity of the Earps against Frank Stilwell, who will become embroiled in our story in just a little bit later down the road. He further says that Ike had been arrested on the day of the shooting simply because he objected to Marshal Virgil and his continual abuse of power. During the actual shootout, McClintock informs us, Virgil was also wielding a shotgun and, after using some rather profane language, called for the Cowboys who were all about to leave town, don't you know, to throw up their hands. But he didn't wait for anyone to do so, including an unarmed Ike and Tom McLowry, before letting Buckshot fly. I'm not sure why I'm sharing all this with you, except to maybe show how much history can get muddled, and historiography is a serious social science. But like I said, I find it a fascinating alternate history that simply was not true at all. But I guess now back to the hearing. After Ike's very helpful testimony, the defense pulled another tricky maneuver. Remember, this is not a formal trial, but more of a preliminary hearing to decide whether a grand jury should be impaneled to consider charges. So, through a legally questionable maneuver, they had Wyatt read aloud a pre-written testimony, without the chance of cross-examination. That's right, Wyatt got to enter in his version of events without any chance of rebuttal or questioning. 
Also, author Jeff Gwynn says that the always confident Wyatt gave a masterful performance through this, tracing all the trouble back to those darn mules that they had found at the McLowry Ranch way back in July 1880. He admitted to having ambitions to be sheriff, which is why he approached Ike Clanton about a deal, since Ike was generally recognized as being one of the chief leaders of the Cowboys. See what he did there? And then Ike kept badgering him about the deal and if Wyatt had told anyone, which eventually turned into threats. Threats which then came from such dangerous men as Johnny Ringo, an honest-to-goodness leader of the Cowboys who was known to have actually killed a man. The gunfight, Wyatt explained, happened only because Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry didn't heed Virgil's call to give up, but went for their guns instead. Quote, I did not intend to fight unless it became necessary in self-defense and in the performance of official duty, Wyatt's statement read. When Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry drew their pistols, I knew it was fight for life, and I drew in defense of my own life and the lives of my brothers and Doc Holliday. End quote. So there the Justice of the Peace had it, the two competing versions of what had actually happened. Both were admittedly biased, but one certainly more fanciful than the other. After a month of taking the testimony of some 30 witnesses, the Justice of the Peace was ready with his decision. On November 30th, his verdict came down to his saying, quote, I cannot resist the conclusion that the defendants were fully justified in committing these homicides, that it was a necessary act done in discharge of an official duty. End quote. He also took a moment to say that Ike Clanton's version of events, quote, fell short of sound theory, end quote. That being said, he did agree that there were good reasons to suspect that Tom McLowry might not have actually been armed, but it was now impossible to tell as credible witnesses gave conflicting testimony. He also made sure that Virgil knew that he thought deputizing the other Earp brothers and Doc Holliday was not the best choice in the world, but, quote, I can attach no criminality to this unwise act, end quote. On December 16th, a grand jury agreed with the results of this hearing, declining to bring any charges against the Earps and Holliday. So... There you have it. The courts have spoken, and there was nothing criminal that had gone down on that cold day in late October 1881. And that means everything is cool, right? Uh, the Cowboys had their day in court, lost, and everyone decided to go along with the decision? Yeah, I didn't believe that one either. As you might imagine, the Cowboys weren't exactly the most forgiving type. It was almost a foregone conclusion from the moment the Earps were cleared that some sort of revenge was being planned. John Clum, in his memoirs, passed along a very fanciful story about rumor circulating that the cowboys had gathered together at midnight in a deep canyon where the names of the men they vowed would never leave Tombstone alive were added to a death list written out in the blood of a murderer. I'm sure you can just see the lightning flashing above as the dramatic minor key music plays. Speaking of Clum, he decided not to run for a second term as mayor, and in December 1881, he left town on an extended trip to Washington, D.C. However, he had not gotten very far before a masked man jumped out of hiding, called for the coach he was riding on to stop, and started firing with a gun. 
well, the coach driver decided not to stop and whip the horses up and they got away. By the time a breathless Clum made it back to Tombstone, he was sure it had been an assassination attempt on him because of his support for the Earps. And the night after this attack on Clums' coach, Virgil was at the Oriental Saloon, where he ran into a prominent Democrat who made some rather glib comments about how he expected violence since the Earps had managed to avoid going to jail. And this Virgil, proving that he really was an Earp at heart, slapped him. Seeing that Virgil was surrounded by friends at the time, the man backed down. But the next night, he confronted Wyatt and Holiday in the Alhambra Saloon, openly carrying a pistol and saying he was ready to fight. Johnny Bean stepped in at this point and pulled the man away before a second shootout happened. The man was fined $15 for carrying a weapon in town, just so you know. But the tensions kept mounting. On December 18th, the epitaph printed a letter that was simply signed, A Minor, that threatened the justice of the peace that had let the Earps go. Part of it read, quote, Take your departure for a more genial climb as I don't think this one healthy for you much longer. It is only a matter of time. You will get it sooner or later. End quote. In light of this, the Earps and their wives all moved to the Cosmopolitan Hotel to be together. It was rumored that the Cowboys set up shop across the street at the Grand Hotel and that someone was always watching for what the Earps were doing. If that's true, they didn't take that long to strike. On the night of December 28th, Virgil had been out at the Oriental Saloon with Wyatt. Wyatt had stayed behind at the saloon to deal with the Earps' cut of the gambling money while Virgil walked the block to their new lodgings at the Cosmopolitan. However, he had only gotten partway along Allen Street when he was ambushed by shotgun fire. After taking pellets to his back, thigh, and left arm, Virgil still had the strength to head back toward the Oriental. Wyatt and others, alerted by the gunfire, ran out to him and quickly got him to safety in the Cosmopolitan and under the care of the town's doctors. Virgil's left arm was a total loss, but he refused to have it amputated, not wanting to be a one-armed corpse. He tried to comfort his wife, Allie, by saying that it was alright, he still had one arm with which to hug her. The doctors eventually removed five inches of shattered bone from his left arm, which he was never really able to use again. Allie would later tell people that they should have all left Tombstone while the getting was good, but Wyatt didn't want to leave, something that she blamed wholly on Josephine Marcus. I should mention here, however, that Josephine also left Tombstone around this time, finally heading back to San Francisco. That's where she would be in 1882 when Wyatt went to California to find her, rather than heading to find Maddie, his actual common-law wife. In the aftermath, witnesses claimed that they saw two or three men quickly leaving the scene of Virgil's shooting. Virgil himself said he thought he saw Frank Stilwell, the former deputy to Johnny Bean, whom they suspected had tried to knock over the stagecoach from Bisbee just a few months earlier. Now, that's something we talked about in episode 87. Stilwell was the man known for calling money sugar. But the most pointed evidence of all was that the hat of none other than Ike Clanton was found on scene. Ike managed to weasel out of any charges when a group of men, all cowboy cronies wouldn't you know it, testified that he had been in Charleston on the night in question. 
In the days following the shooting, and still not sure whether his brother would live or die, Wyatt sent a message to Virgil's boss, U.S. Marshal Crawley Dagan Prescott, to report the attack and to request an appointment as Virgil's successor to the deputy marshal gig. Dake, who was a vocal supporter of the Earps, agreed, and soon Wyatt was deputizing a posse to go on the offensive. He naturally called upon Morgan and Holiday, but also included his hard-drinking younger brother Warren, along with some other friends such as Turkey Creek, or Jack Johnson, Texas Jack Vermillion, and Sherman McMasters. As you might imagine, things refused to calm down. In January 1882, Doc Holiday and a drunken Johnny Ringo, a leader among the cowboys, would have a tense confrontation on the streets of Tombstone, which was only broken up by the timely arrival of some law enforcement. There's no clear record of which side said what to get the other side's dander up, but when two junkyard dogs like Holiday and Ringo got close to each other, it wouldn't take that much to get them to fighting. Other versions actually have Wyatt involved in this altercation, including one where Ringo challenged Wyatt to end the whole cowboy-erp feud in a one-on-one shootout. In the end, Holiday, Ringo, and Wyatt were all dragged to court, where the first two were each fined $32, while Wyatt, technically a federal officer, was let go. Then, in February 1882, Ike Clanton filed another round of murder charges against the Herbs and Holiday, this time in Contention City, hoping for a more sympathetic venue. So everyone, except for the recovering Virgil, were dutifully arrested by Johnny Bean, who I'm sure wasn't basking in any sort of schadenfreude whatsoever. However, suspecting that it was all a ruse to ambush them while on the road to their courtroom, the Earps and Holiday arranged for a group of well-armed friends to ride with them to make sure that there was no funny business. They arrived safely, and eventually the case would be dismissed because no new evidence had come to light to prove their guilt. There would be no further charges filed in the courts after this. No, the Cowboys were now all in for getting rid of the Earps the old-fashioned way. George Parsons, that great primary source about the goings-on in Tombstone, wrote ominously in his journal, quote, A bad time is expected again in town at any time. Earps on one side of the street with their friends, and Ike, Clanton, and Ringo with theirs on the other side. Blood will surely come. End quote. It wouldn't take too long for Parsons' words to prove prophetic. On Saturday, March 18, 1882, Wyatt ran into the brother of Ike Clanton's lawyer. Seizing on an opportunity, Wyatt asked if the man had heard anything about any cowboy machinations, something that he quite frankly expected. The man told him that, yep, the cowboys were still in a fighting mood and that Wyatt and his brothers, quote, were liable to get it in the neck any time, end quote. Wyatt's what he expected, that's probably not what Wyatt wanted to hear. Despite this warning, Morgan and Doc Holliday decided to go attend a new play in town that night. Afterward, Doc sauntered home to bed, but Morgan felt like a game of pool, so he made his way over to Campbell and Hatch's saloon and billiards parlor, which was a few doors down from the Cosmopolitan where he was staying. Wyatt was also in the billiards room at the time, a little past 11pm, when Morgan went over to a table by the back entrance. He played through one game, and was just starting up a second when shots rang out. Shooting through the glass panes of the back door, a rifle bullet lodged into the wall just above Wyatt's head, while a second tore through Morgan's back. 
Despite friends immediately running outside, no one spotted exactly who had shot at the brothers. Morgan was moved to a couch and doctors were summoned, but it was too late. He died roughly 40 minutes after the shooting. A few days later, another coroner's inquest was convened to determine the cause of Morgan's death. During this inquest, a woman named Marietta Spencer came forward and named her husband, Pete Spencer, Frank Stilwell, a man called Indian Charlie and Frederick Bode, as Morgan's killers. In what might be a deliciously ironic example of a plan backfiring, according to Gwyn, Mrs. Spencer ratted out her husband because he had beaten her and threatened to kill her if she told anyone what they had done. At this point, Wyatt, with one brother maimed and the other dead, decided that he was going to go all in on the offensive. And, much like the Cowboys, he wasn't going to rely on courts to give him satisfaction. No, it was time for good old-fashioned justice, hunting down everyone involved and making sure every last one of them paid for what they had done. And that's where I'm going to leave things this week. But join me next week as we finally wrap up this sordid little miniseries and follow Wyatt and his posse as they try to bring their own version of justice to the Cowboys, not caring one bit for anyone, including officers of the law, that tried to get in their way. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.